This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is cultural appropriation? Do we always know it when we see it? Is some appropriation more harmful than others? Is there a less harmful way to borrow culture without doing actual harm? When religious conviction, belief, or faith of some overlaps with a practice or action of others, where does the murkiness of harm begin? My guest on this episode to discuss these ethical questions is Dr. Elizabeth Bucar, and our topic is the book Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation, out now from Harvard University Press. Stealing My Religion guides us through three revealing case studies, the hijab as feminist signal of Muslim allyship, a study abroad pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago, and the commodification of yoga in the West. Dr. Liz Bucar is Director of Sacred Rites, Professor of Religion, and Dean's Leadership Fellow at Northeastern University. She is an expert in comparative religious ethics and is the author of three books, including the award-winning trade book, Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, from Harvard University Press in 2017. Bucar's public scholarship includes bylines at The Atlantic, Los Angeles Times, and Teen Vogue. You can follow her on Twitter, at Bucar Liz, and you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Elizabeth Bucar, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Greg. Nice to be it's, back again. It's a delight to have you here. This is your third appearance, if you count the bonus episode mm-hmm. that we recorded a couple of years ago at my house on your birthday. So welcome back again, and thank you for joining me for your third appearance with me. This is wonderful to have you. And I'm wondering if uh, you could spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience for those who may be hearing from you for the first time about who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Liz Bucar. I'm a professor of religion at Northeastern University, and my research and writing focuses on you know, religious difference and how if we understand religious difference, it sort of changes the way we understand what is right and good in the world. That's sort of the theme that cuts across my work. Um, I'm also director of a grant funded project called Sacred Rights that helps support networks and scholars who want to, you know, sort of talk about their research outside the academy and start and participate in conversations in the public. Wonderful. Uh, so, you know, you were here it's been a while now, but uh, mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, I think it was just before the pandemic, we hung out and we talk about your your other book, uh, Pious Fashion, which was released yeah. in 2017, and then it was issued as a paperback in 2019. So, uh, you know, I'm always curious about the in-between times for people between books, mm-hmm. and I would love to know kind of like what sorts of doors Pious Fashion opened up for you and how that book may have altered 
if at all, like the course of your career and thinking, tell me a little bit about that in-between space after Pious Fashion came out. Hmm, yeah. So a, a big question. And actually that book, if I look back on it, is really very much a turning point, I think, in my career. So mm. I kind of want to answer that other, the second part of your question, like how has it changed the course of my career? Because I think that it, it actually has surprisingly. Um, before that, you know, I just said I was director of this project that supports <laughs> public facing work. I never really did any public facing work before Pious Fashion. I avoided it um, quite successfully for most mm. of my career. And I think because that book was written with a particular um, tone and style and meant to be something that was more accessible to people outside the academy. I mean, it has an academic argument in it, but it also um, is conversation on tries to be engaging and also talks about fashion. So like, that's fun. Um, it had a much broader appeal than anything I've written before, which meant I got asked to do a bunch of stuff like podcasts. I never did a podcast before, right? Uh, right? Um, write op-eds, you know, uh, write something for Team Vogue, write something for The Atlantic. Um, and that was, opened up my eyes, I think, to a new way in which my scholarship could matter um, in, you know, outside of just like getting me things on my CV to get me tenure and promotion. Sure. Yeah. And I think, what else? I think that it, it's, that was actually, that transition was quite frustrating and quite lonely for me. I didn't know how to do it and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I had to like kind of teach myself and have people who were doing it with me. And so Sacred Rights was also born out of that book in some ways, because I Sacred Rights is about creating community to help support scholars who want to do this work, you know, there's some capacity building, like, how do you write an op-ed? How do you pitch? But there's also a lot of like conversations about what it means to be doing this work. How do you decide what to say yes and no to? What are the risk rewards and responsibilities? So that book, and I think, you know, when we talked was me just sort of beginning this new, um, I don't know, make it too grand McLean, but it's new, a new chapter in my career thinking about um, my, my vocation slightly differently. I love it. Well, to me, that book, uh, is is very accessible, and I've actually um, excerpted it in some of my own high school teaching oh, really? as well. Oh, that's, that's that's cool to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and a lot of my students refer to the passages that I have them read in like some of their short answer writing that they do for the course, and so it's it's a very accessible topic, and it opened up a lot of doors. It sounds like, and you know, I think that that topic is super important um, because it makes like religion to the of the world accessible to people who are curious and like well-meaning and open-minded. So I think that that's really great to hear that it was such a great turning point in your career. That makes me really happy um, because, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say um, that I think that the that I've heard that it works really well in classroom settings, um, both in college um, and in high school. But partly the reason why is that you know, it talks about sort of the meat and potatoes of religious studies, whether or not mm -hmm. that's like Orientalism or, you know, religious difference and diversity, but it, it, the way in is something that's very accessible to people. So it's it kind of tricks them into like getting this religious studies 101 through themes that people can kind of grab onto and, and yeah, have me, yeah. See Wonderful. Into their life. Yeah. Well, your new book, Stealing My Religion, not just any cultural appropriation is coming out again via Harvard University Press. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to chat about this, this brand new book that is coming to be released in the coming weeks. But by the time this comes out, it will be accessible to people. But you start with a funny story of how the book came to be. And it's humorous and useful because 
you look at yourself in the mirror a little bit, which is one of my favorite things that writers or songwriters do is like they kind of like, you know, pick something in the world that people are discussing and then they shine the mirror on themselves. So I would love to hear this origin story of how this book came to be because it truly had me uh, just, you know, I, I was chuckling about it and I thought that it was absolutely wonderful. So yeah, this wasn't the book I was planning to write next. <laughs> I have another mm -hmm. whole book I haven't been planning to write for a while that I've been working on. Um, and I had been in Spain. I had been, I had just led students in Spain on the Camino again for I think the fourth time. And I was back having a lunch with my editor for Pious Fashion at Harvard University Press, Charmilla Sen. And, you know, she was sort of like, okay, what's next? You know, I was tired and she was, uh, you know, um, sort of like, let's come up with the next idea. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know what my next book is. I think it's this other book, but first I, I need to write this article about cultural appropriation because I'm just, I'm just sort of annoyed about it. I'm annoyed mm -hmm. about not, I mean, not, I'm not like annoyed about the call, the, I guess I'm not annoyed about it, the diagnosis of the problem. Like I see it as a problem, this sort of like cultural borrowing and, and grabbing up and that is, you know, harmful to uh, uh, community. Like, so, so taking credit for or getting financial benefit from something that communities are being um, exploited for and marginalized for and discriminated against. Like I see that as a problem, but I just, in the classroom, it was a problem because it was getting sort of rolled out sometimes when we were having, um, uh, hard conversations like and mm -hmm. I you know I'm at my core I'm a religious ethicist that's what my PhD from Chicago says on it and I really think there's a lot of productivity in being in an uncomfortable space when we're talking about um morality and values and so I try to foster that level in my, my classroom and so I just found that that was a term that was getting rolled out and then it was super polarizing and conversations sort of stopped and everyone got into their own camps and I was just like, Ugh. and so that was frustrating to me in teaching level. And then also I realized that like in terms of popular culture, no one was paying attention to these harmful moments of borrowing that happened with religion. Like the same people who were like, yeah, awesome. Like, uh, or not awesome. Kim Kardashian stopped taking credit for box braids, but then we're mm -hmm. like totally fine with other cultural phenomenon that felt like uh, sort of grabbing from religion and religious minorities particularly. And so I thought, okay, this, you know, this, I think what Sharmila said was like, no, this is a book. This is the book I want. Yeah. Like, I don't want an article, but that's like, no, it's just an article. She's like, no, it's not an article. It's, it's, that's the book. And <laughs> like on a napkin, we started sketching out case studies. We had like nine case studies of which only three made it into the book. Mm. And I think what I disclose in the preface, which is true, is like when she got to yoga, I was like, oh, wait a minute. What? Okay. Now I'm paying attention. Like I'm kind of yeah. like, my research is going to be leaning into this thing that's already been part of my practice and thinking about why it's icky or why it might be problematic and what's the ambiguity around it. And so some, some of the reasons that draw me to this topic are also the things that I then interrogate throughout the book as things that I, I'm not so comfortable with by the end of the book. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think also starting the book, I realized there was a lot of religious appropriation in my life that I like, I think it, I'm not a special case. I think it's true for a lot of people. I think that's sort of um, the way we think about religion in America involves a lot of borrowing and sometimes it's problematic and sometimes it's not. And um, I, I just realized when I was reflecting on it, going back to my Madonna phase in fourth mm. grade, uh, you know, that's when I started wearing crucifix jewelry, not because I'm baptized Catholic because I'm not practicing. And so you know, what, what does that mean that I wore the crucifix necklace that my Catholic grandmother gave me, but only because I was also wearing it with like lace gloves and, you know, it was sort of a thumbing in my nose at the Catholic church, not the opposite. And so, 
you know, it was just really a really interesting topic to think about and reflect on personally and professionally. I love the uh, the Madonna journey, you mm. know, because it, it ties really closely into your sort of journey out of something that you were born into, it sounds like, right? Is that, mm -hmm. is it, am I nailing, am I hitting that right? Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah, I'm. I baptized Catholic, raised Protestant, had told every, I don't consider myself having a religious affiliation. I'm part of the non-religious affiliated growing um, majority really in the U.S. now. Um, yeah. So that, you know, to pick up religious symbols or even to study religion in some ways is always an act of religious borrowing. So thinking about when is that religious borrowing harmful and when is it not is, was, is important for me to think out personally and professionally. And I think, um, yeah, that's sort of why. It's like, Wonderful. okay, Shamala, I'll write this book. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the case studies that you do include. But first, I want to go over just some some basic terminology, yeah. because mm -hmm. I think that that's important to break down. So you have the, the term appropriation. Mm -hmm. And that matters here, because like in the preface, you say that students have been using that term to shut down conversations. Um, you know, and instead of engaging what it really means, like uh, through like mainstream outrage and things like that. But the introduction says, quote, this book focuses on a class of religious borrowings you can you call religious appropriation when individuals adopt religious practices without committing to religious doctrines, ethical values, systems or authority or institutions mm -hmm. in ways that exacerbate existing systems of structural injustice. So. Mm -hmm. You go on to talk about the importance of harmful ones, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk, say something about your definition and then go into the difference between harmful religious appropriations and another category list, borrowings. Can you give us yeah. a little breakdown of the terms? Yeah, let's kind of maybe break down that definition that you just read, which is that's, that's you found it, Greg, that's the definition of religious appropriation in the yeah. book. It's sort of like hard to digest it all, you know, and when's, um, when we just say it out loud. So, so I think, so... I, the distinction between religious borrowing and religious appropriation is something I actually didn't make till pretty far along in the project. And I realized I had to because all my readers, whenever they saw the word appropriation, they just assumed I was saying it was a negative thing and mm. that it was problematic and that we should stop doing it because we're really conditioned now to think about cultural appropriation as a bad thing. And so I wanted to make space for the fact that sometimes religious borrowings are more neutral. And actually, this is not a book about stop interacting with other religions that aren't your own or stop all religious borrowings, like A, that's not possible. It's just religions don't have fixed boundaries. Like, it's just not the way religions work. And B, it might not be ethically beneficial. There are forms of interaction that might look like borrowing that um, are welcomed by religious communities or individuals or that are important to um, religious literacy, which I mean, not just like, do you know the five pillars of Islam, but do you have sort of a deep understanding of worldviews and value systems. So so I'm trying to differentiate between borrowings and appropriation. And then the things that are appropriation are the ones that I think are more ethically fraught. Um, but again, like it's a spectrum. So you kind of have to look at each one in context really carefully. And then if we go back to the definition that you read, partly what I'm looking at is um, so that definition talks about how it's when individuals adopt religious practices. So I'm really looking at doing things like when are we like picking up things and like, I'm just going to do this technique. And I think I get benefit from this technique, if it's political or health or educational, and I'm basically leaving behind the quote beliefs. I realize I'm doing air quotes right now, which is so unhelpful for a podcast, <laughs> but like, you know, quote, 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 air quotes, beliefs, I'm going to focus more on the practices. And then the first stage to me that sort of raises like a red flag is that the practices are being done 
while at the same time the community is being rejected or the ethical systems are being rejected or the idea that that the, inst the institutions of that religious community are bad or the hierarchies or whatever like all that other stuff so that's an idea that you can take out extract the practice and in some ways be like this practice is pure if i do it and it's somehow not you know impure or um it's problematic in these religious communities, so I can actually do it better than these religious communities who do it. So that that's the first level of sort of red flag that I uh, looking for practices that look like that. And then the other thing is the, the thing that makes it harmful, which is true for cultural appropriation too, is it's not the barring; it's the barring within conditions of mm. injustice, right? Mm -hmm. So like it's problematic when Kim Kardashian wears box braids and people give her credit for creating a, a particular hairstyle that is, you know, has been popular in the African-American community, for example, but also is a practice that gets people fired from their job, for example, right? That structural injustice in which the practice and the borrowing happens is what makes it harmful and perhaps offensive. So it turns out that this book was actually about these religious practices, but then if you zoom out, it was a way to see the ways in which different forms of injustice were you know, interacting, creating conditions where you wanted to borrow, but then also maybe conditions that were uh, harmful conditions and just unjust conditions that your borrowing were contributing was contributing to that you maybe didn't even know about, didn't weren't mm -hmm. even thinking about, right? Like, oh shoot, darn, I didn't mean to do that, right? So it's sort of like trying to highlight that that context. Yeah, and that can be useful too because people can do something, and then if you come to understand it in a new way, like we can reduce these kinds of harmful behaviors in the future because people are capable of learning and changing their own behavior when they learn something new that they didn't know before. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think so. That's actually a good transition in the first case study because that's sort of the takeaway I have from the question of solidarity hijab. Like, do yeah. you do it or do you don't? Right. So that's like solidarity hijab is like the the title I'm calling. Um, political movements or campaigns that basically tell non-Muslim women to like put on a hijab for a day or a week or whatever, something temporary as a way to combat gendered Islamophobia. So that's like, okay, I want to combat gender Islamophobia. That's like mm -hmm. a good intent, right? But then when you look at, when you look more carefully about how, not all, because it's not, not the same reaction to this practice for the entire Muslim community, but if you look at the reaction by some Muslim women and the, the group I'm focusing on, particularly are Black Muslim women based in the U.S. at these movements, um, these solidarity job movements, and how they feel like it's tokenizing and centering non-Muslim women in the political conversation and virtue signaling, the ways in which it seems offensive and harmful to them. Once you understand that and you understand the way that the hijab functions in the community itself because it's a contentious um it's a contentious practice and there are some people who don't like like there are muslim women who reject the practice who would not see a hijab as a good symbol of the tradition either right so all these the more you learn about the more you'd be like ah like <laughs> i like don't feel comfortable putting this on anymore so partly um that level of understanding might have you um, rethink because what, what you're doing because the actual goals you're trying to reach like are being thwarted by the, the practice itself, by the interaction with the practice itself. Oh, interesting. Tell me a little bit about your personal, like, do you have like a cautionary tale of like when you participated in what you call solidarity hijab and like any like personal experiences you have within that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I wear, I have worn hijab for field work in conditions where that was expected or legally obligated, for example, in Iran, but that's, and that's not quite what I'm talking about. Cause I, you know, as you know, from that last book, I've spent a lot of time thinking about religious dress and particularly yeah. Muslim women's clothing, 
but I'm thinking more about something like um, the Women's March when an image, that um, iconic image by um, Shepard Farrelly of, of a Muslim woman wearing uh, a stylized image of a Muslim woman wearing a, a flag hijab. When that image came out, um, was that 2017? Is that right? Yeah, 2017, like right around, you know, there was, was a protest image against the inauguration of Trump. It was picked up. He had met, he had three images, um, three different um, sort of minorities that he thought Trump was going to come against. It was the one that the Women's March really picked up and circulated in a bigger way. And when that first happened, I was like, this is like amazing. Like my secular feminist friends who sort of like are antagonistic to religion have suddenly adopted this religion, suddenly adopted rather this symbol of religion as a symbol of feminist politics and they thought it was a symbol of intersectionality and at first i was like that's cool and you know everyone uh, replaced their facebook page um photo with this image mm -hmm. right it was one of those things like you know my colleagues had a poster printed on her on her um uh, on the front post on the front of her door i think i might have replaced my like you know Facebook um, profile. And then it was like, okay, listening to sort of the pushback against that, like, oh, wait a minute, this is like problematizing that, right? So I, I, and again, I had already like written a book about <laughs> Muslim women's fashion at this point, right? But it's again that I think this is a problem, particularly in that chapter, you see the problem with white feminism, like it, the, the blind spot to how actions like that are centering a certain um, idea of what feminist means, so um, and and what is excluded from it. But I think that 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 is a moment where I, I mean, I didn't. Um, but the, the second case study, right, where we have the New Zealand case, where there after the Christchurch massacre, there was a big so, um, movement to put on a hijab for a day, and uh, as a symbol of solidarity, that community. Like I saw that as a problem. I knew there would be blowback against against that. I saw that coming, um, but I didn't see the first one coming in the same kind of way. So that was a learning moment for me as well. Um, I'm sort of, I'm not the heroine of this book at all. And so I think that partly showing the mess ups that I make, again, I am a literal expert in religious ethics. I'm a right. literal expert in, in, of these, in these religious traditions, and yet it's still difficult um, to see uh the ways in which the things i do are harmful to communities i'm not part of so mm. me taking you through that self-realization is supposed to open up a conversation for you to have that sort of self-reflection as well i love it well i want to move into the second case study here yeah. uh which called playing pilgrim yeah. and you talk about the camino de santiago pilgrimage trips and there's a line that says a camino de santiago pilgrim who describes himself as an atheist and you talk about how you've been on this pilgrimage a lot of times and this is a fascinating case study for me because it's a discussion of how a very powerful religion uh, can also possibly be appropriated. So I'm just curious on this chapter because this is uh, this was kind of a, a different one. This kind of, this one kind of stood out to me. Yeah. So this so I created and developed and led um, a month long study abroad um, program in Spain for five years. Um, I'm taking a break right now. I'm decide if I'm going back or not to do it or not. That's part of what this book is me figuring out. And part mm. of that program was to study comparative religion in southern Spain because there's no better laboratory for like seeing the interaction of Abrahamic religions, for example, which is sort of my bread and butter. And then also um, always included about a week and a half to two weeks walking in the Camino, which is a pilgrimage site to where 
the um, the story tells us, the bones of Apostle St. James are buried in the church there. And I think, so this is an interesting case study. You know, it's very different than the other two. They're all, I mean, they're all actually all very different because it's focused on this, you know, the buzzword now experiential learning. Um, so what does it mean to have a study abroad program where trying on a religious practice is like, core to the curriculum like mm -hmm. i literally bring i mean i always have a couple of catholic students and i sometimes have a handful of protestant students but the majority of my students are don't have a personal connection to this tradition and i'm basically like like try on being a pilgrim and they all come because they're like oh yeah that's like definitely gonna like change my life or i'm gonna understand the meaning of life or i'm gonna like figure out something but they don't have any intention of like understanding christianity or catholicism they just want to experience this this big experience right so i mean i think that the case study i mean the case study is interesting for me because i do think the camino is or i have seen it be a very powerful experience for the you know mostly 18 year olds who like haven't done anything quite so hard maybe in their life or mm -hmm. you know it's it's physically hard but it's also emotionally hard and i'm really we're doing full coursework while we're doing it so it's intellectually challenging um and you know people everyone cries and everybody hugs and you know so i see that that is and a lot of them talk about it being the, one of the most important or meaningful experiences of their undergraduate career but then also balancing it with the fact that like they're like trying to like do pilgrimage right in some authentic way which they think they can do without again with, while rejecting everything about catholicism or christianity and interesting and so it doesn't like like does it really create religious understanding or does it real just reinforce this idea that they deserve to take and borrow whatever they want to for their own self-actualization um so that's like a big part of it for me and the other part of it for me which I, you know, I didn't think I realized quite until I started writing this book is that there's um, there's a story about a group that called itself and the other students called God Squad, which was a group of four Protestant students who kind of saw my program as a missionary trip. Mm -hmm. And most of the trip trying to explain to everyone on the trip, including me, why Protestantism was sort of like normative Christianity and why Catholicism was like the wrong kind of Christianity. And my interaction with them was really challenging for me and challenging for the class dynamic. Um, but it also really showed me, um, and I'll let people read that story for themselves because yeah. what they do is sort of like a little bit shocking. But then also I think for myself, it was really helpful to see like what I felt as a leader of this sort of program was problematic. Like, I, like if the idea is that they're supposed to go there and have a crisis of faith, like I don't want to be leading programs that are about having crisis of faith. Like that, that that's not that my, like that, that's not my job. Right. Um, so, but then on the other hand, this program, you know, one thing that I really uh, spent a lot of time talking about, which most people who do the Camino don't talk about, is that there's a history, a religious history in Spain that's erased by the Camino, and partly it's this dark history of uh, how religious minorities are treated by particularly Muslims and Jews, you know, um, when Christianity becomes dominant again. And so St. James, his nickname in Spanish is Santiago, but his other nickname is Matamoros, more killer. And there's all these statues and things that you walk by when you're on the Camino of like of St. James literally crushing the heads of Muslims. And I really center that in our curriculum. So it's, it's again, not a program where you feel like 
Christians are like the heroes and that can be really unsettling to students mm -hmm. too, right? So I think it was also an opportunity to think about like, you know, religion is a special sort of subject for students. And so thinking about study abroad programs that have religious practice unpinned from communities of uh, communities or institutions is, or, or the students think can be unpinned from communities institutions is, is problematic. So mm. that's like, that's kind of like my, um, my personal takeaway from that chapter. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the, uh, the name Matamoros as well is really fascinating because whenever I used to live in Mexico oh, um, yeah. and there's a, a town called Matamoros yep. very close to the U S border. And the first time I came to understand what that translation meant, it was very shocking for me. Very shocking. Um, yeah, the Matamoros iconography and like stories were, tran were transported when like Spain started to conquer, quote unquote, the new world, right? So you see that there's a lot of towns in South America and the south of the US, for example, that have that name. And I don't know that people know where that where that comes from. I mean, it's, you know, it's, there's this really interesting story about basically, I mean, look, St. James is supposed to be dead already, but he returns to sort of help the Spanish crusaders against the Muslims on a, on a horse, and he's dressed as a medieval knight, and that's who Matamoros is in, um, you know, if you see a statue, there's one in the Cathedral of Santiago, a pretty gruesome one of, like, you know, on, he's on a white steed, and they're just, like, Muslims, like, being crushed by the hooves of his horse. Mm. Um, and so like, you know, it's important, I think for, I really talk a lot to my students about the fact that like, you know, there's a, there's a particular thing going on politically in Spain when this pilgrimage trail is quote unquote discovered and then promoted by the Catholic, by the church. And it's a time we're trying to get more Christians into Spain to push the Moors out. And then these stories about St. James, like, so this is not a, the history itself of the Camino is not um unpoliticized or unsullied right by by politics and, and sort of bad actors and i think they want like an experience that's like pure and perfect and and they don't they don't like that right um and so but i think that that centering that is really important to know that um these experiences and these practices and these traditions are not just about like taking a walk for two weeks and like you know getting a certificate at the end yeah yeah well let's uh let's chat about the uh, the, the third case study Mm -hmm. Um, I know that yoga is very, you know, important within your own life. And I want to hear the story about, um, you know, you have a quote in the book that says a yoga practitioner who insists her practice is merely therapeutic. And so I'm curious about this chapter as well in this topic, which I know that you care deeply about as well in your own personal life. Yeah, so I think this chapter for some readers is the hardest because so many people in the US are so devoted to yoga practice. And I think there's this understanding that like when you pick up a practice, even a religious one for health reasons, like you're totally entitled to do it because we're all able, you know, we should all be able to pursue health no matter what. And so one thing this chapter does is raise the question of like, does your own pursuit of health come at the expense of others, which I think became very clear to us in COVID during COVID that it it can be right. You can mm -hmm. have uh, live in a, in a community uh, with very low transmission rates or low death rates of COVID, um, at, and partly sometimes that comes at the expense of other communities or the U.S. compared to other countries in terms of our vaccinations and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I do have a long history with yoga. Um, I have a mother who learned how to um, practice yoga in the '70s from PBS, and then was a yoga teacher. Uh, or um, you know, most of my life. And then 
I practice for therapeutic reasons for a back injury related to a, um, a, an injury from rowing in college. And uh, yeah, so, but when I say therapeutic reasons, I, I sort of see that there's a, yoga has been in some ways splintered in the US into these two categories where there's like, I call it respite yoga, like sort of therapeutic yoga, yoga to feel good, be healthy, look good in a pair of you know, leggings, uh, fix your back, uh, chill out at the end of the day, whatever, and being very severed from devotional yoga, yoga that might have um, systems of rules, ethical behaviors just to follow, um, understandings of metaphysics or the world have ties to particularly Eastern religions and communities of practice. And that, so part of this is again, a story of the US, like what gets left behind to make mm -hmm. yoga um, as American as apple pie, I think I say yeah. at some point, right? Like, what do you like? What is seen as so foreign, right? So it's like brown bodies, Asian religions, like these things get left behind to make yoga seem more accessible. Um, so that that was an interesting chapter. To, again, it's a chapter that Sharmila lured me to the project with, and for that chapter, the, each chapter has primary research. But the one for that was I got certified to teach because I wanted to get an inside look at how one lineage. You know, talked about religion or disclaimed religion, and the lineage I got trained in is one that used to be devotional yoga, used to be, um, you know, basically an ashram sort of model, like a religious community of devotees that lived in community and just worked in that community and kind of gave up worldly possessions and things like that. And it transitioned to much more respite model or therapeutic model, and now they deny that yoga is religious at all. And so that. Um, Again, that's a chapter about, I always get the first question when I talk about this, this book and this topic, the first question for the audience is usually some undergrad stands up or someone stands up and says, do I have to give up my yoga? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like, my takeaway is not that, but I, I think it is interesting to think about how the, you know, what practices in different spaces have different ethical implications. So if you're practicing at home versus if you're practicing in a studio, maybe that, you know, only has, um, doesn't feel comfortable for different bodies, um, whether those bodies are different sizes or different colors, like is, are you contributing to that maintenance of ableism or, or, or whiteness? So thinking about the spaces that you practice in is in part, part of it. And I think, you know, also thinking about what, what's pulling you towards it. And is there something, you know, if you like Pilates better than, you like yoga better than Pilates, is there something pseudo-religious about it that you like? And but at the same time, are you mm, judgmental of the religious traditions that, you know, have inspired this yoga is much bigger than just the practices that are so popular now, but they come out of these larger devotional communities. And then I think, you know, if the, if the solidary hijab chapter is really about, you know, the more you learn, sometimes the more you'll pull back and not want to do things, the yoga chapter and the conclusion are a little bit more like the more you learn, you might be doing religion, like you might just start religioning, right? You might find right. that you actually the devotional thing, like, so just know these are like serious practices, you might, and there's a lot of people, um, a lot of people I went through training with, for example, who have a very serious yoga practice, and I, even if they wouldn't, some of them would, would adopt the world religion, some of them wouldn't, but it, it, it does the ideas and the, the ethics and the metaphysics, the stuff, the beliefs behind it that you thought you weren't engaging with because the practices were safe to do. Um, yeah. Uh, you might start to like, they might start to be internalized, right? And so I think that's, 
that's another takeaway from the book that these things, if you're um, Mallory Nye, who is an independent scholar, um, has this great line, like if religion is a verb, not a noun. So if you are doing the things, your religion, your religioning. So it may be that doing these practices means you're actually engaged in religion more than you think you are. Um, yeah. I mean, I actually have a personal example of that too. Um, you know, there's a big movement in Zen to just talk about how it's like not a religion yeah. and things like that. And yeah. whenever I moved to Buffalo, I went to a couple of um, sittings with the local Zen group here. And there's a lot of liturgy that goes on. Mm -hmm. And then they did start describing it as a religion. But I was like talking about it back uh, in Missouri with a Rinzai person who was like, yeah, this isn't really religious. Uh, but then the people in Buffalo were like, yes, this is religious. So I've actually experienced that that kind of careening between the religious versus not religious. And that was always very confusing for me. And I think that that kind of disoriented me as well, because I was like leaning towards the not religious part. But then I got like, you know, I fell in with this group who says it was religious and I think it confused me so much that I bailed on it. Yeah. I, so I think that that distinction between like respite and devotional therapeutic and religious, as you see also in meditation, um, sort of just generally in its popularity. And, yeah. you know, there's something about like, well, what does the community that you're part of say? But then I think there's also something, again, that self-reflective, like what's at stake with you about rejecting or accepting that something can be religious or not? Um, and that's, it's really, that means that this book is a question about like, what counts as religion and right. where, you know, how do we think about religion, particularly in the um, American setting, there's something very, appropriation happens everywhere, but there's something particularly American about the idea that like, religion is part of the salad bar of life. And if I want to like pick and choose and mix them together because of, again, politics, education, health, those are the three big themes in the book, I, I am entitled to do so. Um, and I, again, I don't want to shut that down, but I also want to be like, okay, but also what are there implications? Are there effects on people that you haven't thought through? Um, and does, do, does knowing those effects change your sort of approach to, to doing this? I'm curious about when you and Sharmila were laying out a possible pathway for this book, what other case studies were you thinking <laughs> of that didn't get in? You don't tell me all of them, but if yeah. there are some that really stand out, I'm definitely curious to hear more if there were some that you were you know, thinking about examining in the future. Yeah. So the one that I just spoke, spoke to um, some colleagues about that almost made it in was circumcision. Mm. Um, and again, a really different kind of case study, but also a very American case study where male circumcision is very um, popular in the US around within communities that it's not a religious practice for, right? So within non, non-Jewish or non-Muslim communities and the way in which the American Association of Pediatrics deals with it here is very different than the way that other pediatric associations deal with it in other countries. Um, and so again, I think it's just a, it's a space to think about how religion has sort of uh, trickled into American culture in some ways that we um, sometimes aren't aware of. Um, that one's interesting. And that one's a particularly interesting case study for me. And I teach that one a lot because I, because of the way the American Association of Pediatrics deals very different with male and female cutting. And I think in the US, we have an understanding of like female cutting is this extreme practice, even though uh, there's a whole range of things and it's, you know, and it's illegal um, versus male cutting is just what we do. And depending on what family you're in, even if you don't have religious reasons for it, it's just like a normal penis looks like this. And so mm. that is something that really works well in my classes. Um, so it didn't, that and other case studies didn't make it in the book for one or two reasons. I wanted to make sure that I could be auto ethnographic. So I wanted to be able to share, by me, I mean, I wanted to be able to share 
stories of my own experience. And I actually, I don't, I have a daughter, right? So this is not a thing that I had to think about um, and make decisions about in terms of circumcision with my partner. So my partner is Jewish. Mm. Um, my family is not. It would have been a super interesting dilemma, I think, for us to deal with. But it wasn't one that I had a personal story about. So it didn't make it into the book for that, for this particular book. Although I think intellectually, it's an interesting case study. And it's very, very, like there's just like a lot of different players involved and a lot of people have a lot of stake in that. Um, so I was going to be having to, I was going to do it. Um, it would be other people's stories that would really animate it. And I didn't, I was worried it would come across as judgy compared to these other stories. And then other things didn't make it in because maybe I had a personal connection, but not one that I felt like, you know, I could uh, share in public. Um, so really that, that's a question, like this is one of those calculuses you do <laughs> as a writer about, you know, who, what parts of yourself do you want to share um, to start a conversation and what parts do you like not want to share? So I think I'm the most vulnerable, probably. Um, I actually am pretty vulnerable in all the chapters. Um, yeah, you are. But- it's really an impressive part of the book, how open and honest you were. But like I said about like shining the mirror on yourself to yeah. kind of like get the conversation going, it's really fabulous. Yeah. I mean, I think the yoga one was the hardest one for me to to write because I do have a practice and think writing this book made me think about how it bleeds into devotional practice in a ways I hadn't before. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are like, I can't remember all the case studies. I just think, you know, there were just so many ways in which religion is part of, um, popular culture. I mean, there's a whole thing now with like, uh, satyrs and, um, yeah, you, know, you pick, pick any religious practice and then you can find, you know, something that is picked, um, that is uh, communities outside that outside communities or outsiders pick up that practice and like, oh, if that's beneficial to you as religious practice, maybe it's beneficial to me in some ways. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I'm wondering before we before we conclude this conversation, if you have any updates you'd like to talk about sacred rights at all, if there's any like kind of, you know, comprehensive uh, report or, you know, comments that you have oh, for the audience. Yeah, you... comprehensive report. Okay. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just got back we were recording when I've just returned from a retreat that was a joint um, project with Sacred Rights and the Forum for um, Theological Exploration. So we did a retreat on writing as vocation for um, a cohort of doctoral stores, uh, sorry, doctoral students of color. Um, and, and that was really, really great um, because that retreat was not only public writing, but just thinking about scholars as writers and mm-hmm. what, you know, if I had thought of myself as a writer before, I, mean, I only started thinking of myself as a writer since Pious Fashion, really, so since my book before this book. And I think if I had thought about myself as a writer before, I wonder what that would have meant in terms of not only what I would have written or how I've written, but how my relationship to writing and how I might have found it more energizing and sustainable and less you know, exhausting. So that that's part of doing these collaborations has been part of the work. We also have, um, we just recently got uh, two new grants to support another four or five rounds of training. Actually, I'm really excited um, around a couple cohorts focused on scholars who work on the intersection of race, religion, and justice, and those are supported by the Luce Foundation, and another cohort focused on scholars who are working on sexuality and sexual difference, and that one is sponsored by the Carpenter Center. So we are, yeah, we've just spent, um, Greg, you know, you've been part of this. We've just spent the last nine months doing a whole curriculum review. Like we taught our curriculum for three and a half years, and we wanted to do sort of a review particularly around being more um, conscious about our sort of anti-racist mission. And so we sort of did an anti-racist um, revamp of the 
of the curriculum with focus groups and revisions everything and we just reproduced everything and greg was so kind to come on board and help us with the editing of these um the audio parts of our of our we have these podcast versions of our lessons that we'll do on online training so yeah we have a lot a lot of things going on so uh yeah stay tuned for follow sacred rights on twitter and we um, particularly if you're interested in trainings um keep your eyes open because those are free and sometimes even come with a stipend to participate and it can be great for finding community to do this kind of work well dr liz bucar where can people find you if they want to follow along and know more about your work so my Twitter handle is one place to start. So that's at Bucar Liz. Um, and I also have a website that's actually just relaunched for this book, which is um, fun. And that's a place to see where um, any media coverage I have. I'll try to keep that up to date. And also my upcoming talks for like the fall. I'm doing quite a bit um, of talks around, this, around the book release, for example. So those will all be updated there as well. And that's LizBucar.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a real pleasure to chat about your brand new book, Stealing My Religion, Not Just Any Cultural Appropriation, coming from Harvard University Press. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Greg. It's always great to talk to you.